Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 79. And clearly the war doctor and 10,000 warriors failed in their attempt to overrun Grahamstown. Now they are on the run. Three of Mthlambe's sons were among those killed during the battle, and some of Nguyko's people had also fought alongside their compatriots, despite the chief supposedly being an ally of the British. The surprise attack had tested the small British force, and while greater battles await, Grahamstown is still one of the most significant of the entire period of the 19th century in Southern African history. Had Ngele succeeded, the frontier of South Africa may have been very different. As it was, the Cape Colony was about to experience a mass immigration of several thousand English speakers in a process we know as the 1820 settlers. But that's for a later podcast. Had Ngele thrown the British out of Grahamstown and the Albany district, these settlers may have headed off to America, Australia or New Zealand instead. Britain was in the throes of an economic slump after the Napoleonic Wars and citizens were leaving the shores for the New World and the ancient world of Africa. A few hundred would arrive in Cape Town and Algoa Bay by December 1819, less than a year after the Battle of Grahamstown. Ngele had been planning to crush the British at the town and his next target was Graf Reinet on the edge of the Karoo, the other symbol of Cape expansion on the frontier. It's thought that the Khoi Khoi would have joined the Amakosa in this expedition like they did in 1799. Had Ngele managed to secure victory, who knows what would have happened. The shock of the Khoza attack on Grahamstown led to a three-month build-up of British troops and a large commander was also pulled together by Graf Reinet Landros, Andries Stockenström. The colonists were afraid of another attack, so they had to hunt down in Tlambe and in Ngele. And on the 28th of July, 1819, a large commander of 2,300, including British soldiers and Boers under Stockenstrom, as well as the Khoi Khoi of the Cape Regiment, rode out into the country between the Great Fish River and the Kaiskama. Ngrika and his son, Makoma, joined in along with 300 warriors. The fact that a couple of these men had been involved in the Grahamstown assault under Ngrele was quietly forgotten. Wilshire loaded his wagons with scaling ladders and around 1,000 sandbags, convinced that Ntlambe and Ngele would have fortresses, stockades and redoubts, which he'd have to besiege. The equipment, of course, was ludicrous. The Matosa fought a mobile battle. They didn't sit in these settlements waiting to be besieged. They had no castles or fortresses or redoubts. It appears no one had the heart to tell the lieutenant colonel not to waste space in his 60 wagons by taking his ladders. The British had decided to launch their counter-attack in the middle of winter and in an area of the Cape which received quite a bit of rain in winter, unlike the other regions of the country, which are summer rainfall areas, as you know. This meant they ran the risk of fighting the Tosa in damp conditions, very bad for gunpowder, but in the end British firepower was going to eclipse any strategic weather advantage, and the Tosa had misjudged the colonists, who had learned how to keep their gunpowder dry. Still, it was a harsh and cold rain which fell, and into this rain rode the commander. In Tlambe and Inglade had hidden themselves in the Fisher River Valley, mainly in the area from the junction of the Cut River down to the sea, where the vegetation is thickest. Wilshire decided to send most of his wagons of food, ammunition and fodder to a central area near the Amatola Mountains, from where they would swing down to the coast. The British were going to use the Trekboers and the Khoikhoi to do most of the hard fighting against the Koza. There were 1,000 of these men, and they would have the burden of clearing the Amakosa from the Albany thickets. It's a tangled mess, this fish river bush. Ask anyone who's hiked through there. 
It's dense, virtually a jungle in places, and that Corsa were convinced the Trekpoors and the British wouldn't find them. Some of the chieftains drove their cattle into the elephant trails that wound through the thickets, then changed direction, turning into inner passages that were well hidden. It was a dangerous affair following these passages through the vegetation. An ambush on the narrow trail meant a hidden Corsa warrior could spear a British soldier walking past and then melt back into the bush. Ngaele, meanwhile, had fled with his followers further eastwards along the coast he'd split up with in Columbia. The war doctor ended up heading towards where East London is today. He had not given up on the plan to drive the Boers and the British into the ocean, but his actions from now on were largely gestures of a defeated man. The story of what happened next is grainy and nuanced. As he walked with his few hundred core followers, a man who was now more of a cult leader than a political force, he focused on the famous rock that you can find today, around 11 kilometres southwest of the East London CBD, and this rock looms over the sea. It's called Cove Rock, also known as Kukompo, its original name. This is a slab-like cliff which shines with an orange-brown luster. It's nearly 100 feet high at the end of a broad sweep of sandy beach. If you approach it from the ocean, it looks like an island, and the first seafarers who approached the slab of rock said it resembled a coffin. It was also the home of the East India Company sailors from the Stavanis, who were shipwrecked nearby, and who brought the first proper descriptions to Cape Town of the Amatkosa more than 100 years before. This virtually unknown slab of sandstone in the Eastern Cape has a cleft, a deep and wide notch in its middle, and the sea thunders through this notch, in essence creating two slabs. One slab adjoins the shore, the other overlooks the Indian Ocean, and it was on the land slab that Ingleli sat back in August 1819. After some time, he declared to his followers that he was going to try and leap from the land slab to the sea slab across the cleft, or the chasm more like it, and then he would call the Amatkosa long-dead ancestors to rise from the sea and walk ashore and then drive the settlers away. There's something almost Pirates of the Caribbean about this, but it's no joke. This is what Ngrele told his people. The only problem for Ngrele is first, he said he had to try and jump from the land slab to the sea slab. The gap is large, more than 30 meters, and before he could attempt this superhuman leap, Ngrele called for an ox to be sacrificed. Once the animal had been slaughtered, his supporters gathered on the beach below Kukompo, Akaai Cove Rock, where they would observe the war doctor undertake his giant leap. A few days later, the sands around Kukompo were packed with followers looking upwards, having partaken of the last great sacrifice. With a great deal of pomp and ceremony, the war doctor ascended the land slab, and then he sat down, staring across the gap at the ocean. If anyone has seen the slab, you will know there is no way a human can leap across the gap. Ingleda was facing the impossible, and like a man contemplating suicide, he sat up on the slab through the entire day, making no attempt, gazing at the winter waves. The sun began to sink and the cold wind blew in from the sea, from below, his followers were chanting and shouting, Ngele, the sun has set, we are tired and cold, leap, leap. But still the war doctor sat immobile. A man who had promised freedom was imprisoned by expectation and the realization he'd failed. His people below lit large fires and feasted on the remains of the sacrifice, as the imposing and regal war doctor sat on the land slab, forlorn. Some of the people then entered the water through the cleft below, but Ngrele shouted they had not followed his instructions, and they were sent away. As Noel Mostad points out, there was a moment of pathos, a man lost from those below on a lofty perch, 
smelling the fires of the beach where meat roasted, no doubt contemplating the bitter truth. He knew he could not jump. It was a bleak moment for him and his people. Darkness fell, still he sat motionless, staring blindly at the sea. Finally the people below walked off the beach, seeking the warmth of the thick bush. His power was fading away. Ngwele had been very visible earlier, leading 10,000 warriors into Grahamstown. Now he was out of sight. His vision had imploded. His plans had shattered. But, like all good leaders, he pulled himself together over the next few days, and on the 13th of August, 1819, he led a large force of Koza warriors as they advanced on around 1,000 Boers led by Stockenström near the great Fish River mouth. It was a damp day, and Ngwele was hoping to catch the trek Boers out, but the first volley caught his soldiers, and the survivors dispersed, abandoning 6,000 head of cattle as they retreated, caught between two colonial columns. Forty-eight hours later, Stockenstrom was sitting at his camp on the east bank of the Great Fish River when two women, appeared to be starving and disheveled, walked out of the bush. They said they'd brought a message from Ngwele who wanted to negotiate peace. Stockenstrom said all he could offer was his life and treatment as a prisoner of war. The Boers thought these women were spies and sent them away. But to their astonishment, on the 16th of August, Ngwele walked into the camp at sunset, accompanied by the two women who turned out to be his wives. Ngwele had decided to offer himself as a sacrifice to the colonists, hoping to spare them at cause of people. He said he had caused this war. Now he said, let me see whether my delivering myself up to the conquerors will restore peace to my country. His act of courage had an immediate effect, and through his allies, the Kulnukwebe under the proverbial bus. Kobe, who was chief of the Kulnukwebe, was not involved in these peace moves and continued to fight along with Ntlambe, although the latter was beginning to have his doubts. As Jeff Perez and other historians have noted, it was this propensity to operate as different chieftains that was going to weaken Amatkoza politics in the future. As the pressure increased, their unity disintegrated, and the bickering Amatkoza chieftain history was something the party government would exploit to great effect when it created the two homelands of Transkai and Siskai. Stockenstrom treated Ngwele with civility and even honour, and he was so impressed with the war doctor's mayor Kilper that he decided he would not chain or tie up the Amatkoza leader. Instead, he gave Ngwele a wagon and fed him choice morsels. But he was also guarded by two soldiers with orders to shoot him if he tried to escape. Lieutenant Colonel Wilshire and other officers arrived to see this war doctor, and they were all impressed by his presence. Remember, Ngwele was six foot six tall and broad-shouldered. His demeanor was lofty, said Wilshire. Ngwele asked Wilshire to stop seizing Koza cattle. The people were starving. Their economy was crushed. But Wilshire refused, sending him away in handcuffs to Jacob Kyler, the Landrost at Utenhag. Less than a week later, a group of Koza men were seen standing in the bush close to Wilshire's camp. These were Ntlambe and Ngwele's chief counsellors, and they wanted to negotiate. But before that, they wanted to tell Wilshire a few truths about what they had endured. Their comments have reverberated across time. The war, said the counsellors, was an unjust one. As they spoke, Wilshire took hasty notes. And here's what they said. You are now seeking to exterminate a people whom you forced to take up arms, said the men. When our fathers and the fathers of Amabulu first settled in the Zulfelt, they dwelt together in peace. Their flocks grazed the same hills, their herdsmen smoked together out of the same pipes. They were brothers. 
which, as you know, if you've listened to the series so far, was true. What changed, said the councillors, was the herds of the Amatkosa increased so as to make the hearts of the Boers sore. What those covetous men could not get from our fathers for old buttons, they took by force. They had lived in peace, but then Inglika's people and the Boers and the Khoikhoi had begun to steal. They wanted peace to be restored, but they had one big issue. And it wasn't the Boers or the whites in general. It was with Inglika. You want us to submit to Inglika. That man's face is fair to you, but his heart is false. Make peace with us. Let him fight for himself. Set Makana at liberty and in Tlambe, and the rest will make peace with you. But Inglika shall not rule over the followers of those who think him a woman. Wilshire, who was a survivor of the Peninsula campaign against Napoleon, was not convinced. Inglele was in chains on his way to Cape Town, about to board a ship in Algoa Bay at that very moment. Governor Lord Charles Somerset was not to be denied. There was no way the British were going to release him based on some vague promise by Nflambe's councillors. The British officer wanted to take the war to Nflambe instead, and then to the paramount chief of all the Tosa, Hinsa, whose people had helped Inglele against Inglika at the Battle of Amalinda, and who were now talking of war against the colony. Hinsa had tried to keep his Traleka people clear of any direct involvement so far, living as they did across the Kai, the Transkai of today. Wilshire was not willing to stop the war at this point, so he sent Nflambe's councillors away empty-handed. The British were aiming to clear the territory of Koza between the Kaiskama and the Kai, then they were going to cross that river and continue into Traleka country. Back at the Fish River, Stockenstrom began to experience some problems with the British way of conducting a war. Wilshire wanted to advance and strengthen, and slowly Stockenstrom and the Boers preferred a more mobile form, a more African way, if you like. Nflambe by now was hiding out somewhere between the Kaiskama and the Kai rivers. He'd headed northeasterly into the area near where Stutterheim and Cathcart are today. The British, meanwhile, were bogged down as heavy rains fell. Fording the rivers was impossible. The Kaiskama, for example, was a swollen torrent. The infantry and artillery couldn't cross, and Wilshire was determined to concentrate his forces, having seen what Amatkosa warriors could do in Grahamstown. He was ponderous, overburdened, and overcautious and he was not going home until he found Nflambe. At least, that's what he said. And the Amatkosa chief was getting further and further away, but as he did so, he left large numbers of stranglers behind. These were mainly women and children, and elderly and the infirm, and it was these stranglers whom the British and Boers began to shoot. Wilshade also brought a new weapon along from Europe, designed during the Napoleonic Wars by Sir William Congreve, and this infernal machine was called the Congreve Rocket. It was a missile that was used at Waterloo, and even in the dampness of the wet weather, it set the thick bush ablaze on the frontier, and the people hiding within ran out along with their cattle. Nguika and his eldest son Makoma watched these attacks, joined by warriors now numbering close to 600, and they also now waited alongside the flooding Kaiskama. As they sat there, both enjoyed liberal mugs of Wilshire's Cape brandy, something that for the unfortunate Matkoma was going to escalate into a serious alcoholism problem throughout his life. By the 9th of September 1819, the level of the Kaiskama dropped and the British crossed over with the commander and Inrika's warriors. Stockenstrom called for increased speed, but the lieutenant colonel preferred to roll slowly across the eastern Cape Felt with his wagons and artillery as a deliberate show of force. 
to Boer Commandants van der Waals and van Wijk were given permission to conduct localized raiding with 300 men, and yet it was too late. Inklambe had reached Tembu country in the highlands. Watching this force rolling towards him in his great place across the Kai was Hinsa of the Traleka. Hinsa sent a message to the British saying he'd return any fleeing Kosa and refuse sanctuary to those from the west of the Kai as long as the British stayed away. But Wilshire had decided that Hinsa was lying and Nika was at the British commander's side muttering about the Amatraleka being liars and cheats. It was the son of the former Dutch VOC Landros Andries Stockenstrom who wanted to avoid fighting the Amatraleka and suggested he should try and meet Hinsa. One of Hinsa's chief brothers, Buru, facilitated the meeting and the Graf René Landros rode to the western bank of the Kai then waited. Hinsa appeared on the opposite bank. The river was in flood but they could still shout across the roaring waters. Eventually, the Landrost had enough and spurred his horse into the flooding river, crossing in minutes and shaking Hinsa's hand. Hinsa was impressed. He remembered Stockenstrom from an earlier visit more than a decade before when the young man had travelled to the Amatraleka with explorer Collins working as a translator. He was, of course, fluent in Kosa, Dutch and English. Eventually, Hinsa agreed to meet Wilshire. The commander told Stockenstrom that Hinsa should be arrested on the spot, and the Landros was aghast, as that would precipitate a far more serious war against the Amatrosa. Luckily, the lieutenant colonel changed his mind, and the Amatraleka chief spent a number of days at the British camp. Both sides then smoked a peace pipe, literally, it appears, although the pipe was tobacco, not hemp. The Fifth Frontier War stuttered to a close, both the colonists and the Amatraleka were seemingly convinced of each other's good intentions, while Ntlambe was still out in the wilderness, free and roaming and a threat. Ngika then claimed the Transfish River area as his own now that Ntlambe and the Kunukwebe were gone. The minor chiefs were also on the run. The Amatkoza had suffered another defeat and more land was dispossessed. Most of their cattle had been seized. Thousands of people were homeless and starving. The Albany district was earmarked for a major expansion, and waiting in England were citizens who were feeling the pain of a downturn in the European economy. They were going to emigrate to Australia, America and South Africa. The 1820 settlers were coming, although the first would actually arrive in 1819, as you'll hear. Watching the arrival of these people from his Robin Island prison cell was Nguele, the war doctor. He had been jailed for life, as Stockenstrom had warned. Imagine how he felt watching the first fleet of European settlers sail into Table Bay for final provisioning before heading off to the Eastern Cape frontier as he languished in his Robben Island prison. Just a final word about Ngele. Lord Charles Somerset treated him well. He had his own private cell. It was more like a room, it was said, and he had special food. Basically, anything he asked for, he was given to eat, which is actually similar to what happened to Nelson Mandela in the latter years of his imprisonment. Then, during the night of the 9th of August, 1820, the war doctor and around six other prisoners seized a boat from the nearby whaling station and sailed to the mainland. As they approached the beach somewhere near Bloberg-Strand, the boat capsized in the breakers and nearly drowned. His body was washed ashore a few days later. But among the Amakosa, his name lived on in oral history storytelling, and his memory was secured in his fight against colonials. And that is why Grahamstown has been renamed Makanda. 
Klele Aka Makanda's personal possessions, including mats and ornaments, were stalled by his family and buried in his kraal much later in 1873, with the hope that he'd emerge from the ocean with his ancestors and secure freedom. We know what happened instead. Nelson Mandela was the man who emerged from the ocean after leaving Robben Island and took South Africa to its first democratic elections. Next episode, we'll swing back to the north because Shaka had been very busy there by 1819. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at Des Latham. Until next, Tootsies. Thank you.